Before we start, we have two events coming up in June that our East Coast and West Coast listeners should know about. On June 15th, Postscript Media is holding Transition AI Boston. It's a one-day conference in downtown Boston digging deep into the applications for artificial intelligence and the energy system. We're going to have panels, networking, and a workshop on ChatGPT. Speakers include Priya Donti, the co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI, Pamela Isom, who is the former executive director of AI and technology at the U.S. Department of Energy, Patrick Walsh, a general partner at National Grid Partners, and Savannah Goodman, the data and software climate solutions lead at Google. So if you're in the business of energy and climate tech and a better understanding of AI is important to your job, you should come to the event. Again, downtown Boston, June 15th. Our listeners get a 20% discount. Follow the link in the show notes and use the code PSPODS20 when you buy your ticket. And for those of you over on the West Coast, our friends at Canary Media are hosting their next live event in Seattle on June 28th. It's going to be a good one. I can attest I've done multiple events with Canary, and uh, Canary Live Seattle is going to feature some of the biggest names in our industry, like Amy Harder, David Roberts, Ramez Nam, as well as Canary's executive editor, Lisa Hymas. The venue is the legendary radio station KEXP in downtown Seattle, and you can expect some amazing panels and lively networking. Again, uh, we've done multiple shows with Canary. The Canary Live events are incredible, so go check it out, canarymedia.com com/seattle to get your tickets today. Don't miss out on either of these events. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Hey, it's Stephen here. I am sitting in a hotel room in Washington D.C. I just wrapped up a live show at the Nuclear Energy Assembly. I was joined on stage by my collaborators Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, and we had a uh, wide-reaching conversation on how nuclear might scale in America, the difficulties in scaling, how nuclear and other forms of clean, firm power are going to play with renewables and batteries on an increasingly distributed digital grid, and where the money is going to come from. And uh, I'm not going to say much more because I've got plenty of preamble in the show, and we go deep into a bunch of topics. So, Enjoy, and that is coming right up after a few words from our supporters of this podcast. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. I'd say we face the unexpected basically every day. This is Caroline Cochran. She's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Oaklow Power. She's probably familiar to many of the people in this room. And her experience is probably quite familiar as well. I do think I'm a glutton for doing hard things. And there's something about being a part of making something happen that hasn't happened before that keeps me coming back and, and excited about the space even after, you know, basically 10 years since we started the company. So Oklo is developing a fast microreactor with a range of 1.5 megawatts to 50 megawatts of capacity. It uses recycled low-enriched uranium as fuel, and it could be used for microgrids, industrial sites, or other remote applications. Oklo's design is based on a technology proven decades ago, but commercializing it in a new form is anything but proven. It feels like nearly everything we do has never been done before, from mundane business aspects like insurance to you know, more complex things like working out fuel contracts with DOE that have never been done before. So it's challenging, but it is fun. There's a satisfaction to that. But not every challenge has a satisfying outcome, of course. And that brings us to January 6th. No, not the January 6th you're probably thinking of. Uh, This surprise came out of Washington, D.C. a year after that. A plan to build a new compact fast reactor at the Idaho National Laboratory is cooling off for now. 
the Nuclear Regulatory Commission turned down Oklo Power LLC's 2020 application. Yeah, I mean, our reaction was complete shock because um, the last conversation I had had with them was that they'd received what they needed and they were looking at it and they'd let us know. The NRC did not find any safety issues regarding the design, only that the information gap could affect further review. And then, you know, January 6th, uh, different January 6th situation, but... Um, you know, we woke up to this phone call. So it was very shocking. It was very surprising. I thought commercialization would happen faster. After a nearly a decade of operation and a painstaking multi-year application process, federal nuclear regulators told Oklo to try again. So like any startup, you either bounce back or you fold. And the Oklo team bounced back, focusing on breaking the application process up, building new recycled fuel contracts with DOE, deepening testing relationships with government labs and continuing to talk with customers. So it's not all depressing. We haven't built things that I expected to have built by now, but at the same time, we are now laying the groundwork for the mass deployment of these things in a way I, I couldn't have envisioned and is really exciting. So Oklo's story tells us a lot about the daunting road ahead for nuclear startups. The venture funding rounds, the lab-scale tech breakthroughs, the beautiful artistic renderings of power plants are just the start of a very long and expensive road to commercialization. In the U.S., the Department of Energy estimates we may need to triple nuclear capacity by mid-century from 100 gigawatts to 300 gigawatts to hit net zero emissions in the electricity sector. And McKinsey estimates we need 400 to 800 gigawatts of new nuclear globally by 2050. And that is a staggering number. Right now, we have almost 400 gigawatts of nuclear power globally. So we're talking about, at a minimum, doubling our nuclear power capacity. That's a, a pretty strong modeling organization with a pretty huge number. Dr. Lara Pierpoint is someone who might be familiar to people in this room as well. She's the CEO of Actuate Climate, where she works to speed up commercialization of deep decarbonization tech. And she's the former director of technology strategy at Exelon. I have two minds about everything, but I will say this. I'm more excited about the nuclear industry and what's going on in the nuclear world, and particularly in the advanced nuclear sector, than I have ever been. And interestingly, she's excited because of legacy challenges. Enthusiasm for new reactors have been tempered by economics and the reality of the regulatory process. But many startups, like Oklo, are pushing through in spite of those difficulties. And I think we've come to an interesting sort of, you know, waypoint through all of that, where I think the current crop of folks who are developing advanced nuclear reactor designs, the folks who are financing those designs and those companies, I think all have a healthy dose of realism about how long this is going to take and how hard it is and are doing it anyway, which is a really great place to be. So with that double dose of realism and optimism in mind, let me introduce the show. This is The Carbon Copy I'm Stephen Lacey, and this week we're coming to you live from the Nuclear Energy Assembly in Washington, D.C. I am with my longtime creative partners and guest podcast co-hosts and well-known experts, Jigger Shah and Catherine Hamilton. Catherine is the chair of 38 North. How are you, Catherine? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. And Jigger is the director of the DOE's Loan Programs Office. Hello, Jigger. Hello. Welcome back to D.C., Good to be here. I always get a warm, fuzzy feeling when I'm here, particularly when I come on stage. <laughs> so this show comes in three parts today. Uh, first, we're asking, how do we prepare the U.S. nuclear industry for liftoff? Then we'll dig into a new government strategy to bridge the gap to commercialization in nuclear and a range of other deep decarbonization technologies. Then what does a grid saturated with renewables, storage, and nuclear look like? And what are the ways these technologies can work together? And finally, we'll look at some investment trends across clean energy, where the capital's flowing, where it's not flowing, and does ESG backlash even matter? So with demands on the grid expected to surge thanks to economy-wide electrification, we need to deploy as much low-carbon capacity as possible, right? Renewables, batteries, demand response, they're all leading the charge, but the DOE estimates we need to see maybe 550 to 770 gigawatts of clean firm capacity by 2050. That's advanced long-duration storage, geothermal, hydro, hydrogen, advanced nuclear. And if advanced nukes are going to rise to the challenge, we need clear, deliberate collaboration between the government and private developers. And DOE is doing just that with its new liftoff strategy. So we talked about that in a previous episode, and we're going to dig in to how it's going to work for nuclear. 
So just some initial reactions first to the opening story there. Um, Jigger, how much of that experience is reflected in your conversations with the nuclear industry at DOE? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where uh, for a long time, uh, government has been sort of on the sidelines, right? That it provides this extraordinary amount of funding for uh, new designs, R&D, these other pieces. But, you know, they were, as recently as the Obama administration, explicitly not allowed to work on commercialization, right? That there was this mandate in their funding that said anything that was beyond technology readiness level seven was not allowed to be worked on, right? So, So only sectors that could commercialize with venture capital, private equity, et cetera, could be successful. And nuclear is not one of those sectors, right? Nuclear requires a deep partnership with government. Without a deep partnership with government, there's actually no way to, uh, to have a thriving nuclear industry, whether it's on the fuel side or the supply chain side or, or uh, just, you know, the safety part of the designs and all those things, um, you know, there, and you see that with the Advanced Reactor Deployment Program. You see that with some of the programs uh, we have today. But I do think that, you know, DOE and the government was 10 years late to the game, right? These are things that they could have been doing in 2012, but I think is now, you know, happening in 2022. All right, so we'll talk about what is happening. Catherine, let's talk about what you're seeing out there. Like, the particulars of this story are not unique to nuclear. You're working with lots of companies in long-duration storage um, that are working on difficult business models, you know, pre-commercial technologies. What are the sticking points right now for the new crop of entrepreneurs working on deep decarbonization? Yeah, and I think of transmission too, because you you talk about a long time horizon. That is just a killer for folks who are trying to do new transmission technologies and building transmission so, yeah, I mean, part of it is market uncertainty. Knowing that the market's going to be there when you're ready for it is crucial. The time to market is also really important. You have to have a lot of patience, patient investment, but also just patience in the way you're doing it. And I think of, you know, I work on public policy, but I just think of public policy as one tool. So you think of, you know, someone has this great invention and there are lots of really cool, interesting things happening in this industry. And you're seeing a lot of deals right now, like up 400%, the number of deals that are being cut in for nuclear technologies. But then you not just have the, you don't just have the technology. You have to then have, how are you going to build your business model? Who is going to pay for this? How are you going to bring both public funding and private funding together to make it happen. And then what are all those policies that are either going to help you? And so let's say a tax credit would be helpful and think of the ones that are gonna be barriers. And that would include all of these permitting regulations that are out there that the nuclear industry has to go through that are, that are really unique to that industry. And I would say on a, on a much smaller scale, there are other technologies that do that too. But I mean, you don't have time today to go through all of the different levels of, of being able to go from point A to point Z. And the good news is there are a lot of tools out there now that are allowing us to leapfrog a bit. And that's what we're hoping for in this industry too, I'm sure. And you can see how you could potentially leapfrog in, say, long-duration storage. But like it's hard to leapfrog in nuclear when you have this extensive regulatory process and you're going through a process that a lot of other, these, these other companies don't have to go through. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But in your interview, you also, the woman that you interviewed said, well, we figured out how could we shorten the cycle or at least work on other cycles at the same time. And I think you just have to get creative about having to do that because hard tech is exactly that. It's really hard. Yeah, so, so when we say clean firm capacity, what does that entail? Like, Jigger, what's, what's, give us an assessment of like all the different technologies we're talking about when we categorize that. Well, I mean, I think when you define the characteristics of clean firm, I think what we're talking about is when a polar vortex occurs, when you have a heat wave, when you have some of these other um, unexpected uh, events, like we want to make sure that we have reliable power to help people navigate those events, right? Navigate the the cold, the the heat, et cetera, right? And so, so when you think about 
clean firm technologies, um, almost anything can be clean firm, right? So obviously you have nuclear and geothermal and hydro and technologies like that, but it could also be variable renewable energy paired with long duration energy storage, right? Or it could be uh, natural gas power plants uh, paired with carbon sequestration and storage or, uh, you know, other types of technologies there. I think what happens though is when you start to think about it this way and you saw that in the Lazard um, levelized cost of energy analysis, which just came out, um, where for the first time they talked about what does it cost to firm all these technologies, almost everything came in above $100 a megawatt hour, right? I mean, everything from renewable energy that was cheap, let's call it $30 a megawatt hour, added, uh, adding you know, 20, 30 hours of battery storage to uh, natural gas plus carbon sequestration storage to nuclear. And so part of, I think, our challenge is, is that as we think about adding load uh, around this whole electrify everything effort, right? I mean, we think about it in electric vehicles and heat pumps, but it's also, you know, the industrial processes that can be electrified or hell, it could be Bitcoin and AI, right? I mean, if, if ChatGBT takes off, that's another 10,000 megawatts of data centers required, Right? And so where does all that power come from? Right? And I think when you think about where we are on the practical uh, limitations of, of the grid, um, you can clearly run the existing grid with business as usual uh, growth um, with a bunch of technologies that have 90% capacity utilization and then battery storage at the end nodes right? so that you're using up all that power. Or you can put in a bunch of technologies at 25% to 40% uh, capacity utilization, but then you have to 3x the grid, right? And then you got to get that done, right? And so there are all of these ways of getting there. And then along the way, you end up having all these really practical issues around 85,000 power plant workers that are going to be laid off with uh, shutting down coal plants and natural gas plants at the end of life. Most of those communities receive 25% of their property tax income from those power plants. And so that's a huge hole in their budget that, you know, uh, deserves a just transition, right? And so when you start to think about all the different things like clean firm on the engineering side, but then the reality of how people are affected on the other side, nuclear becomes part of the solution uh, to that problem. Catherine, how do you categorize the technologies and applications? Yeah, so I think my categories, some of the technologies are exactly the same as what Jigger has said. But I also think of, I spent a lot of time on the demand side thinking about how do we actually harness what you would normally consider load and have that become more of a resource. Because what you're looking for in addition to reliability is resilience. You want to, if you fail fast, you got to come back fast. And I think what that means is we have to be much better system thinkers. We have to be much better at being able to connect the dots on what's happening on the customer side to what's happening on what would be traditionally the supply side and realize that nuclear power is a really key component of that and also that it has more than just being able to provide clean, firm power. It actually also needs to be seen and operated as flexible generation. And I think flexibility is going to be the key in the future, no matter how much clean, firm we need. Something can always take a plant down, but if you know you have the flexibility built in and that you have the system designed as a system of systems, then you're going to be in much better shape. And nuclear has a huge role to play in that. Mm. Yeah, that feeds well into the grid management discussion we're going to have in a few minutes. Let's dig deeper into the liftoff report. So, Jigger, open up the report. You're very blunt. Your team is very blunt. It says advanced nuclear is at a commercial stalemate. Probably not a surprise for many of the people here. How would you describe that stalemate? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where uh, when you think about a nuclear power plant, it, 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 particularly when you look at Vogel, where we've invested you know billions of dollars on a loan programs office into a loan there, um, these are custom made components, right? I mean, almost everything in there. Uh, these valves are you know larger than a human being, right? In terms of uh, how large they are, right? And and what it, what happened was ultimately when you think about uh, Southern Nuclear, um, there's lots of lessons learned, and we can go through them, but. Um, but ultimately, for even if it came in on time and on budget, for an electric utility company to take on a $16 billion liability uh, 
right, to, to build that up is a lot for them to handle, right? Most utility companies just have a really hard time grappling with that much risk and their public service commissions, et cetera, right? So you end up in a situation where uh, that format, even if it, from an engineering standpoint, is the lowest possible cost of power, was very difficult from a risk management standpoint, right? And so you now have seen the embracing of a small modular nuclear reactor, right? Where each 300 megawatt reactor might be $2 billion, where a lot of folks can handle that. And if you build four of them, you get to $8 billion. And uh, when you look at Vogel Unit 3 and Unit 4, Unit 4 has come in 30% cheaper than Unit 3. So no matter what Unit 1 comes in at, even if it's at you know, $12,000, $15,000 a kilowatt, you, you can take those learnings and really reduce the cost of Unit 2, 3, and 4 on the same site. Right? So now you've got a risk profile that, uh, that I think people might be able to get their arms around. And you see that Ontario Power Group has actually made the first new reactor order in a long time here in North America. And then TVA is looking to follow their, their lead. Um, but even then, uh, you need 20 orders. Right? Like, how do you build a supply chain? If you're a forge company, how do you build a forge? Right? How do you, how do you like, scale up? the supply chain of wire harnesses and all of the component parts that are required for one deployment, right? It's just, that's the commercial stalemate, right? Is that, is that for a lot of the electric utility companies, they're saying, we want to see OPG be fully successful at deploying a reactor, bringing it in basically on time and on budget, maybe a 50% cost of run for the first unit, before we're comfortable going to our public service commission with an order for our reactor, right? And that then prevents OPG from succeeding because then it's hard for them to get the supply chain built up for their reactor, right? And so so figuring out how we all send signals to each other in an incremental way that if this happens and this happens, then we're going to come in and we'll be, you know, order number 14 or 15 or 18 or whatever it is, is critical because without that order book, it, you just don't have a commercial uh, industry to invest into, right? And so then you end up with an inability to take off uh, for the first facility. So Catherine, you've worked closely with DOE over the course of your career. You worked at NREL. At one point earlier in your career, you're familiar with how the government thinks about commercialization. Like, What are the tried and true strategies that influence the liftoff plan? And like what feels new, like a meet the moment kind of thing? Yeah, so you have to get in the way back machine with me to go back to when I was at NREL. And I feel like that was the day when you really, DOE was tackling one valley of death. So you would, you would develop the technology, and I worked a lot on cellulosic biofuels. Um, I worked a little bit on geothermal too. And these are really difficult, just as nuclear is, to get off the ground. These are big, capital-intensive processes. And we would give money to build a pilot plant and, and then just say, all right, you got your pilot, let's go. And there was not a recognition that, actually, there are many more valleys of death. You kind of have to follow along and go to the next one and let the government come in then. I mean, this is, an, as you said, an iterative process, right? So there are lots of valley, different valleys of death. And I think that's what this liftoff report shows is that there are different places where we have to engage and also, we have to have the private sector with us all along. You can't just have them come in someplace down the road. It ha- they have to be part of the entire journey from the very beginning to when you're really to scale. And I think the liftoff reports do a really good job of shining a light on that, on the fact that we need to have the government engage all the way. And you look at what the advanced reactor demonstration program is doing, and everything is 50-50 cost shared. And that is how it should be, right? You need the private sector to get skin in the game so that they will have a reason to stay with you throughout. So, Jigger, I don't mean to minimize the work, but I've seen a lot of reports in my day, a lot of big, well-written reports that have gathered a lot of dust on the shelves. Like, what, if you're going to develop, if you're going to create a steady state of deployment for nuclear after 2040, as this report identifies, how do you sort of create the programs, make them leap off the page, and what do you need to do between now and 2030 to develop that build-out um, 
you know, and create that steady state industry as you've identified. Because if we delay by even five years, that has huge ramifications. Yeah. So the liftoff reports, and you know, as you know, there was a nuclear report, but then we also had carbon management, hydrogen, and then long duration energy storage. And we have our next set of reports that we're writing now for, uh, you know, for liftoff in August or September. And, you know, I think that the, the goal of the liftoff reports is not to uh, reflect DOE strategy or policy, but instead to reflect what we're hearing the private sector is saying that they're going to do and what that interaction looks like, right? So when you read the liftoff report, there's a couple of big themes in there. One is that, uh, that Vogel had a lot of lessons learned, right? And you saw that G. Itachi uh, uh, decided that they were going to um, spend $400 million up front with TVA, OPG, and Synthos to be able to avoid starting construction with a 20% complete design, right? And then uh, that's a big deal. And, you know, we, we saw uh, Giatachi read the liftoff report as part of writing it and, you know, and, and, you know, doing exactly what they said the lessons learned were, right? The other piece of it, though, is that it, it describes very clearly where the electric utilities are. So there are four major uh, suggestions that they make there. Uh, one of which is this um, this risk sharing model, right? So they were saying that uh, that in order for us to come in, we're happy to pay the two billion for the plant, and then we're happy to eat the next billion um, if there's a cost overrun. But then we need DOE to come in and share the next cost overrun above that fifty fifty, right? So that um, so that we then can feel like there's uh, a greater amount of like trust building with the public service commissions that we're having to get through, right? That was the private sector putting something on the table. Now, I have no idea whether Congress is going to give me the money to do that. But, but it, it reflects the best thinking that the private sector has today around how to get over their own fears of putting in a reactor order, right? And so, so this, is not, this report is not something that DOE has to implement. This is a report that reflects what the private sector has to implement. And then DOE can say, okay, if they do their part, how do we realign our programs and our capital that we've been giving Congress to meet them where they want us to meet them, right? And so the beauty of this report compared to other reports is that it's not up to DOE to implement this. It's up to the private sector to implement this because this is a reflection of what they told us they needed. Right? Well, great. Now that you've told us what you needed, I hope you're implementing the stuff that you told us you needed, and then we'll watch carefully. And, you know, and the other thing I'd say is that it's entirely possible that 20 important voices didn't bother to tell us what they needed. And for the next version of this liftoff report, they will, and it'll reflect more of their uh, unvarnished opinions around what they think that they're prepared to do and what we, they think DOE needs to do to get them to do their part, right? And that's a messy conversation, but I do think that it is an important one because if we're going to be private sector-led and government-enabled, the private sector has to learn how to tell us what to do. So, Catherine, as you read through this report, like what if you look at long-duration storage versus uh, carbon capture versus advanced nuclear, like are there a lot of similarities across the, the, the approaches? Well, they, they approach it with the same intent, which is to hear from stakeholders and to kind of take them through a similar process. But the answers are really different. Right? Yeah. There's really different amounts of investment that's needed in different places in all of these technologies. So the reports, while they present as quite similar and they are asking similar questions of stakeholders and the private sector, the results are very different and the needs are very different. So that's, that is also the beauty of it. The other beauty of it is that they are considered evergreen. So they're, they're living documents. So as we progress, you can continue to provide more input. You may even get additional feedback from the private sector that will then help you adjust or pivot what the government is doing. If I can just add something right there, Catherine, like, um, it is very clear from the reports that hydrogen and carbon management um, have already seen liftoff, right? There's mm. 40 plus billion dollars worth of announcements on real projects. And we outline that in the report of the 17 different, you know, sort of use cases that people promulgating on hydrogen, three of them have most of the money. 
And carbon management, we do the same thing. And it's also very clear that you don't have liftoff in nuclear or long-duration energy storage, right? That here are the challenges that we see now. And so, you know, like, I mean, we're trying to, trying to be as honest as the private sector was with us. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So to wrap up this segment, I, I, I want to talk about Plant Vogel for one moment. And I did talk to Laura Pierpoint about her experience in actually visiting the site. So one thing to know about me is I'm a huge fan of so-called industrial tourism. I love learning by seeing real things in action. And the most fascinating trip I have ever taken was to see the second plant vocal as it was being finished in Georgia just this past January. And she came away from that visit feeling conflicted, like inspired by this enormous feat of engineering, but with the extreme cost overruns, years-long delays, she also felt that difficulty of scale. They had to do a pretty big excavation for the two reactors that they built there in order to, you know, put the concrete pads in and everything else. And so there is now a gigantic dirt pile next to where they've built these two reactors. Uh, And the top of that pile currently represents the highest point in Burke County. So literally just digging the hole for these nuclear reactors has changed the topology statistics of the local county. You know, I'm looking at all of this and thinking about how unbelievably daunting it is But at the same time, you know, one of the really interesting things is they went much faster and were able to be far cheaper with the second plant than the first plant, especially given that a lot of the workers knew what they were doing the second time and were able to port right over. Um, So that's really exciting. And then when you think about the amount of electricity that these reactors are going to produce, it's just enormous. And at the end of the day, you're standing on this one site and it's going to provide electricity to an entire region. Uh, And that's a really incredible and, you know, no pun intended a really powerful thing. Um, So it was just, it was really, really interesting to see what our future could look like if we're able to start doing this on a more regular basis, particularly globally. So you're sitting down with your family or your partner planning a vacation and one person says, let's go to the Azores. And the mother says, let's go to Thailand. And you're like, no, let's go to Waynesboro, Georgia and go check out those dirt piles and concrete pads. Absolutely. You have to. It's so much fun. So, Jigger, to wrap this up, like, what do you take from that learning experience at Plant Vogel? Like, are we on a path to continued learning in this industry, or is it a one-off thing? I'm inspired, right? I mean, you know, I was the guy who built the largest solar project in the United States in 2007, which was, you know, eight megawatts in, in uh, Alamosa, Colorado. And it was a feat to behold then. Uh, and it was a lot of work. It was really hard work. And, you know, when you think about, you know, the PPA we signed back then, which was like at 19 cents a kilowatt hour, and where solar has gotten to today, I just think when you think about the sheer amount of persistence that it took to build Vogel, right? 13,000 workers, uh, IBW workers, were trained there, right? Many of them, you know, started at 17 years old when they, you know, came in as apprentices and, They've now paid off all the debts for their entire family, right, through the living wage that they received. And, you know, they're now journeymen, um, you know, that are there, and they're now going to build the next set of nuclear plants, right? I just think that doing the first thing, doing that first project is always extraordinarily hard. And I'm inspired by the fact that we really had the grit to see it through. So let's shift now to how the grid is going to work. And we touched on this a little bit at the start, but a DOE analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act finds that under a best-case scenario, it could cut emissions 50% in the power sector. So an evaluation of like a half a dozen major power sector analyses from NREL to Princeton to Breakthrough Institute shows that we need around 200 gigawatts of nuclear to decarbonize the power system alongside renewables and batteries. So how are all these technologies going to play together on the grid. Um, I want to talk about some hybrid systems, about how they'll, they'll function together. Um, Catherine, first, let's just dig deeper into the role of clean firm capacity on a grid that is increasingly distributed, renewable, and digital. Like, what does the modeling tell us the grid's going to look like in a decade and beyond, thanks to the IRA? Yeah, all the modeling does show exactly the results that you're talking about. So, 
clean electricity, which is now about 40%. And I would say that is, in a very broad sense, that's um, renewables, nuclear, um, fossil with CCS, um, all of those technologies that are either low or zero emissions. So we're at about 40% today, and by 2030, between 70 and 90%. And it's also about 70 to 90% of carbon reduction. And this is as a result of the combination of two things. It's not just the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's also the infrastructure bill. So the infrastructure bill is crucial because it really provides some of the foundation from which we can launch the Inflation Reduction Act. And we will find, um, you know, $800 billion in addition in avoided climate damage. So money that we would have to pay as, as the climate crisis wreaks havoc everywhere. And so... These two bills are crucial to getting all everything deployed. And I, and I would say a lot of the modeling doesn't deal with, with the uh, distribution side of the grid. Most of it does deal with the supply side of the grid. So I think if you actually combined everything, you're going to get a lot more done than even these models are showing. However, you also are dependent upon a lot of things. Like, you need to make sure that the technology costs and performances are are there, that you are able to deploy renewable energy at a reasonable cost, that you're able to build transmission where you need it, um, that the natural gas prices don't go crazy, um, and that the CO2 pipeline is, you know, that's also going to be crucial if you think about a hydrogen economy. So there are a lot of things that have to fall into place but right now the market signals are there and also the co-investment from the government signals are there. Mm. Jigger, I want to hear your thoughts on specific applications. Um, NREL has explored this question extensively with a focus on like hybrid renewable systems that could provide both electricity and industrial heat. Um, I talked to Laura Pierpoint about this important function. Particularly for advanced nuclear, there are certain designs that have really high heat levels. Um, so they heat steam upwards of 900 degrees Celsius. And so there's some really interesting things you can do with industrial offtakers to provide really high heat uh, and decarbonize what would otherwise be really tricky to decarbonize processes if they require heat at that temperature. And there's definitely a possibility for nuclear plants to toggle between those services depending on the needs of the grid or the industrial offtaker. So I think between that and storage and renewables, you could really have a pretty a pretty solid way of powering a city and of powering some additional industrial stuff near that city. And then Caroline Cochran of Oaklo thinks that new reactor designs like the one that Oaklo is building can help with more sophisticated load following. Light water plants or water-cooled plants, by the nature of their physics, literally have a limit to how fast they can scale up and down. You know, there's a potential for advanced nuclear to play exceptionally well. Um, And I say advanced because many of the technologies, some number of technologies, ours in particular, are able to load follow much more rapidly than historical nuclear. And the trend towards smaller plants could open up new applications, like Alcala's working on a 15-megawatt reactor, talking to customers upwards of, uh, to, about applications upwards of 50 megawatts, and they could help offset the tens of thousands of backup diesel generators in California that are there, you know, hidden in the background for reliability reasons. That's actually a, a strong suit for what we're working on in advanced nuclear. Um, our company in particular is working on, you know, starting very small, but also scaling up from there um, for different market needs. So I think the small scale use of power generation as needed in different areas, and hopefully the development of a smart grid will will further enable these kinds of technologies to really work well together. So I'm excited about that size range for sure. So what do you think, Jigger? What is compelling to you about different applications of nuclear? Well, you know, I think that we have to actually solve for the bulk that we need in the grid, right? Not just the, you know, fancy, interesting sort of like, uh, you know, uh, assemblies that we put together. Like, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, We're dealing with, you know, the 45V credit for for hydrogen right now, right? Um, Right now, given interconnection queue challenges, the most amount of renewables that you can add to the grid right now is about 50 gigawatts a year. Right now, maybe we'll get that solved next week. You know, maybe it'll take a month. We'll see. But like, you know, it's 50 gigawatts a year. In order to build 10 million tons of hydrogen, you're talking about 200 gigawatts of renewables that have to then be built and then converted into hydrogen, right? 
So, you know, if you're only doing 50 gigawatts a year and 200 of it goes into clean hydrogen, well, then not that much of it is actually going to shut down natural gas plants or coal plants, right? And so, so you know, part of the challenge I see with all this is bulk. Like, you need a huge amount of electricity, just in a gigantic amount of electricity. I just think that, you know, we think about this from a U.S. point of view, right, which is great. Like, and I was at the National Hydro Association Conference um, last week is Water Week, I think is what it was called. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're also sort of like in this commercial stalemate. It's like, well, these turbines are modern engineering. We love these turbines. They've been around since 1930s and they continue to work. I was like, yeah, but don't modern turbines produce 15% more power and then they're more capable of, you know, bringing in weather data and then operating more efficiently? oh yeah, and they're more fish safe and all that stuff. But these turbines are fantastic. I was like, I get it, but we need to upgrade all these turbines and produce 15% more power. That's a lot of bulk, right? And most of the grid right now is, is um, you know, balanced with hydro, right? Like hydro is one of our largest balancing resources. So I just think that one of the challenges I see from a top-down perspective is just thinking about bulk. Everyone is thinking about like, well, we could do either solar or hydro or wind or whatever. We need to do all of it, and we're probably still unlikely to actually reach the total amount of like kilowatt hours we need. So I think that's point number one. The second piece then is industrial, right? So when I was at Sarah Week, I talked to like ExxonMobil, I talked to Dow. You saw the announcement maybe from X Energy and Dow where they're gonna like create a clean plastics plant. And the goal of that plant in Texas is to then ship that clean plastic to to EV manufacturers who then can you know reduce the carbon footprint of their uh, EVs right so so I think when you think about like that use case um, like their excitement is really around this technology providing the use case you know we can sort of say but here are six other ones but if you're customer driven right that's what the customer wants to buy right so I think that's the next point I make the last point I'd make is that. You've got three big sections of nuclear, right? So you've got the AP-1000, which if you talk to engineers, you're going to say, by definition, the best ever, you know, safe, will generate the lowest cost of power, fine. I don't think any EPC contractor wants to wrap that thing and provide you a guarantee price, but whatever, you know, know, practicality be damned. And then you've got small modular reactors, which are not so modular, but they're small. Um, And... They're basically capable of, you know, getting an EPC wrap. That's a $2 billion thing. And then you've got these micro-reactors. I think they mostly call themselves nuclear batteries because you're unlikely to be able to refuel them, right? So they sort of come with their standard fuel. And in that case, um, they're more expensive, but they're truly a manufactured product. You will have a factory, just like an offshore wind factory that makes these 13 to 15 megawatt offshore wind nacelles, make micro-reactors that are, you know, that are, that are coming off the factory floor, 100 of them a year, right, out of the factory. And that's pretty awesome too. And we'll see which succeeds, but you could imagine that it's not cost per kilowatt hour that wins, per se, as opposed to the American approach to the private sector and government support will likely make us more successful at a certain set of uh, reactor designs over another set of reactor designs. And that's, that, I think that's something that's totally plausible. So, Catherine, there's been this like long-running war between hardcore renewables advocates and hardcore nuclear advocates who are like constantly pointing out the flaws of each technology. And as we all know, energy is all about trade-offs. <laughs> and it's about managing those and engineering around those trade-offs. Um, how do you think about that framing? I mean, it seems to be disappearing a bit. Uh, it's a really tired debate, um, and uh, it's it's going away. But it's I think people are still in their camps and so, to some degree. Like, how do you think about that framing, and like, how does it fit into actually how we manage the grid coming up? Yeah, so I think that's a good way to put the question because there it, it is a framing issue. So you know, when renewables were first starting out the nuclear industry was the incumbent. Um, I worked for a utility for 10 years, and that was how we got most of our power was through nuclear energy, and it was stable and it was there, and 
renewables were kind of this other little thing. And they were also very much pushed by the environmental community. And the environmental community was very opposed to nuclear because of the fuel issue. And so that was, I think, the first big driver was the environmental community wanting to make sure that renewables came in and took more of the share of generation. Now, you know, it's, they call it big wind. I mean, wind and solar are requiring an enormous footprint. There's, there is pushback. Those industries are grown up and they're realizing there are a lot more people who are going to push back on us because now we're being seen as the incumbent that just wants to grow. And I think that the reality is when you talk to a developer, wind or solar developer, they're always thinking about how are we going to be able to maximize what we're doing? How are we going to be able to make sure that we don't have to curtail, um, that we generate good revenue? And they have to find partners to do that. Now, some of those partners are going to be in storage, but some of them are going to be in nuclear too. And as Jigger says, it's not a monolithic industry. You might have different technologies that are going to pair with different renewables. And people have been thinking about this for a while. I know NREL has done papers, you know, a decade ago, five years ago, about how you would pair this. But I think the reality is going to be going forward because of issues with land and availability, also with interconnection, that it's going to become more of the conversation is how do we pair these technologies to really get what we want, to drive up profits for developers, to make sure that we lower curtailment, and that we really keep more things operating for everybody's benefit. Jigger, have we be evolved beyond the sort of last decades of Twitter spats and I mean, how we frame this? I don't know, right? <laughs> you know, Twitter is Twitter. <laughs> they, they feature spats. Um, but, you know, I think we are, you know, after the Ukraine crisis, I do think that energy abundance has taken on a realism that I think um, a lot of people just didn't... Um, fathom before that, right? I think there was a feeling that, uh, that, you know, we sort of had plenty of energy around and that, uh, that, you know, we could sort of just make trade-offs and choices. And I think after the Ukraine crisis, um, you needed LNG, you needed, um, you know, to deploy heat pumps at scale, you needed to think about virtual power plants, you needed to think about all of these sort of solutions to try to get back to energy abundance, right? And I think that, I think energy abundance is what's on the minds of uh, most folks, including the folks who are, you know, increasing the amount of coal that they're using today. All right, we've got 10 minutes left, so let's go to our third topic and, and just touch on investment trends, so capital flows, constraints, investor attitudes. Um, for a macro view of how investor sentiment is shaping up, I reached out to uh, Reverend Kirsten Snow Spalding, who's the vice president of the Series Investor Network. Do you prefer Kirsten or Reverend Snow Spalding? Kirsten. How often are these themes coming into your Sunday sermons? <laughs> they, they do come into my Sunday sermons. I do, I do this work because it's important to financial markets, but I also do this work because it is necessary for everything that we care about. So the world hit a very important milestone in 2022. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, over a trillion dollars was invested in clean energy that year. Um, electric vehicles, storage, renewables saw the biggest jumps in investment. Nuclear investment was flat. Meanwhile, large banks and institutional investors are still putting trillions of dollars into fossil fuels, even as they tout their net zero plans. So how do we read that figure? I think, you know, the numbers that BNAF have produced are really important. The answer is not enough. <laughs> but what I see is a gradual shift so when we're saying not enough, what do you mean by that? How would you characterize not enough? Well, I think it, it varies from um, investor to investor. So we have some really focused asset managers who specialize in clean energy infrastructure, who are really thinking about the alternative technologies. Some are working in early stage. Some are working with very developed technologies and scaling them. So those specialists... I think are really leading the way. But for the biggest multi-asset class managers and owners, there's got to be a real shift as we decarbonize the existing portfolios. And if they're largely in the passive asset class, we're just not seeing the opportunities there. So we have this stark contrast. Investors are increasingly looking to stop investing directly in funding fossil fuels. 
Uh, but the world's largest asset managers with passive portfolios, which includes bonds and equities, are heavily exposed to fossil fuels still. So what are the forces driving and delaying the surge of money into clean energy? And how do we maintain not just a trillion dollars of investment every single year, but trillions annually by the end of the decade? So, Jigger, uh, in 2013, you wrote this book called Creating Climate Wealth. Uh, it, it outlined the strong economic case for a rapid energy transition. Do the investment figures we're seeing right now line up with what you expected to see by this point? Yeah, I, you know, I think they're obviously short of where we need to be. Um, and I think part of that is, as we talked about before, we lost a decade, right? The loan programs office was dormant for a decade, but also um, the world was talking about how the technologies that we had available to deploy were not worth deploying and that we needed to double down on innovation instead of deployment. I think we now know that that was just an enormous mistake and that we lost 10 years, right? And it's not just in nuclear. We lost 10 years in hydro. We lost 10 years in geothermal. We lost 10 years in lots of sectors, long-duration energy stores. A lot of these technologies were worth deploying then. And I think when you look at which technologies are making up the trillion dollars today, it's the ones that people couldn't keep down, right? It's the one that like, you know, because people were saying bad things about solar and wind and electric vehicles 10 years ago, right? But Elon Musk couldn't be stopped. The rest of us in the solar industry couldn't be stopped. You know, the wind guys couldn't be stopped. The lithium-ion battery guys couldn't be stopped. And so they kept going. And magically, as if rights law wasn't invented in 1939, they actually, you know, figured out a way to get their costs down, right? And that's why they're scaling now to trillion dollars. And these other sectors all have the ability to scale to a trillion dollars too. Nuclear, geothermal, hydro, carbon management, you know, hydrogen, all of these sectors, had we started 10 years ago, would be at the same place. But we didn't. It is what it is. So now we got to start next week, right? And we got to figure out how to get those technologies across the bridge to bankability. And then once they get to that point, then all of those big asset managers will say, actually, this solar, wind, EV fund I have are going to add more commas and add these other, other technologies because there's actually enough history that we feel comfortable with the risk reward and we'll invest in those. And, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, I, I mean, I can't, cry over spilt milk, but I can say that like, you know, it's, it's a bias that we have to move away from now. We still have to do innovation. Let's not kid ourselves, but we have a lot of technologies worth deploying. And it's, and when you think about what the UAE accomplished with Korea in, you know, in the UAE recently to build their four reactors and, and others, right. You're starting to see that these technologies are worth deploying at scale. Mm. So fun fact about Catherine, every question I have can be perfectly tailored to a certain point in her career. I got to ask about your work at NREL, <laughs> you know, you worked on the IRA, um, you've worked at a utility, and you also worked in private equity. So uh, tell us, like, given your experience in private equity, like, where's the money, where's the investment activity the strongest, and where is it the weakest? Yeah, it's interesting. Based on what Jigger said, I was just going to say innovators going to innovate. I mean, innovation didn't stop. It just, the support for it came in different places. And I work with all clean tech, climate tech companies, and they're supported by a number of different types of funds. And I would just say a lot of these are end uses, hard to decarbonize sectors, industrial processes, plastics, agriculture. We're working with a company that makes leather out of cow DNA. I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing. There are all these super interesting people out there innovating. And, and there are also those who are trying to improve the processes that we've had for a long time. Geothermal, some of the new geothermal technologies, some of the new fusion technologies. Um, hydrogen, of course, has been really hot. When I went and I called a bunch of investors and just said, hey, what are you all thinking about for nuclear? And I got, a, I got a bunch of different responses. So for the VCs, they're like, you know what? There's just such a timeline to operation. It's, there's such a risk in that and so much regulatory uncertainty. I'm not really thinking about that right now. I talked to a late venture, early growth company. And again, they said, the permitting timelines are really tough for nuclear. However, you look at the Microsoft announcement that's huge. That's corporates. Corporates saying, you know what? We're going to do this. And they invested, Microsoft invested in Helion, a fusion company. 
and they have a 2028 PPA. I mean, they are, that they're going to start operating. And I think that's going to drive us. It's the corporates as much as anybody else, because they're putting their money into having to make sure that they operate their facilities the way they want to operate them with with all of the needs that they have, whether it's AI, whether it's data management, all of these corporates are really stepping up where I'm not seeing as much on the VC side. I mean, you'll Mm -hmm. see some very, you'll see some folks like Breakthrough, some early stage who have very patient capital, but I think the corporates are driving it now. Yeah, the corporate piece is interesting too. And and a company like Microsoft is also making some early stage investments in direct air capture as well. And they say like, we're a company that understands technology risk. We're willing to make some of these these bets. Um, so, So on that note, on like the strategic investment side, um, obviously, like ultimately, we need utilities to want to invest in this. So, uh, Jigger, what do you see on the both of you actually? What do you see on the utility side, like in terms of the appetite? Because ultimately, like they're the, they're the ones who are going to want to really invest in these plants. So, we participated in the Guggenheim Nuclear Conference in 2022. Um, at that point, every stock analyst basically said, if a utility announced a nuclear plant, we'd probably downgrade the stock. Right? This last year. In 2023, we went to the same conference and the Sacramento's like, actually, you've done a great job educating us. We understand now the way the risk-reward frameworks are working and we're actually very bullish on Duke and Dominion and, um, you know, and Pacific Core and others who put nuclear into their integrated resource plans. So that's starting to send those CEOs the right signals. Um, but they still, you know, as you've heard me say before, I mean, utilities operate at the speed of utility jealousy, right? So... There has to be another utility that goes before them and then one of their other peers that goes before them and then they want to be third or fourth in line, right? And so we're doing that, right? I mean, that's why OPG is going first and really respect the fact that the Canadian government's providing the support to do that. BW, you know, uh, RX 300, like, you know, um, is moving that forward and that, you know, that company does a lot of work for um, the nuclear Navy. And so... You're starting to see folks moving forward. They're putting in their resource plan. They're spending the $50 million for the you know, early site permit. They're doing the things that they feel like they can comfortably do, but inching things forward. And the goal, I think, is by 2025, 2026, right, when OPG is in full construction, um, for there to be 20 orders that come in, right? And I think, I think once that happens, then I think all the electric utilities will come very quickly because they have a huge amount of pressure on them frankly, from these coal communities who want to just transition. I, we're, I see the clock has hit zero here in front of us, so I just want to round it out. I was going to ask about the kerfuffle around ESG, but it's just kind of a madhouse, so we probably don't even need to, need to talk <laughs> about, about all the, the insanity around ESG. But I guess that the, the last question I'll, I'll, I'll ask is about sort of how we reconcile the short-term boost right now for fossil fuels with the structural headwinds for fossil fuels. Like we're in this moment when a lot of investors have switched a short-term focus back to fossil fuels because of high prices, um, thanks to, you know, the supply crunch globally. And, you know, when we look at oil and gas shares against benchmark indices, they performed worse on a decade time scale. But I wonder how you reconcile sort of with the short-term activity that we've seen with the long-term structural headwinds. I mean, I think you have to be careful about um, worrying about stock prices. Um, Part of the reason why LNG is where it is today is because of its strategic nature around, you know, global energy, uh, you know, politics. I think when you think about nuclear, um, the U.S. is in a much different place today in the world than it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? And... Uh, we clearly have the best nuclear technologies in the world. Um, and you hear that. Eastern Europeans all want our technologies over the French or the Korean or, you know, Jap- uh, sorry, uh, Russian or Chinese designs, right? But they want us to build it first and then build the next one there, right? And when you think about what it means to deploy nuclear power into a country, it means an 80-year relationship with that country, Right? So you can imagine, whether it's the Department of Defense or the State Department or other parts of the U.S. government, they're viewing our prowess in nuclear in the same way that they viewed you know, fracking and LNG um, around how this works globally. For all of these countries that are going to COP, 
who are saying, hey, we have all these big goals, but we're, you know, very heavily dependent on coal. Um, they all want U.S. technology, not just nuclear. They want U.S. nuclear, right? And the U.S. has to show up, right? And that means that we have to show up here first and build our first reactors here. And then they want to buy the next ones. You saw that with Poland with the AP-1000. And I think you're going to see that with a lot of these other nuclear designs that we build here first. Catherine, what do you, how do you sort of parse the, the, the short-term supply crunch, rise in fossil fuel prices, investor sentiment shifting with these long-term uh, you know, structural changes in the energy sector. Yeah, I totally agree with Jigger that that is short-term. I mean, we have all the market signals in place now. The Inflation Reduction Act is not going anywhere. We need to put our mouth where the money is. <laughs> we need to start building. And I think <laughs> as, as a country, we are now going to be able to show that leadership. I mean, Canada is just putting tax credits into place faster than they, they, than they possibly can think of because they know everybody was going to go up to Ontario and now people are thinking about maybe we should stay here instead because it's looking really good in the market. So I think long-term, we're, we've shifted and we're going to continue to go. And we just have to depend on all of the folks here and elsewhere in the world who are coming up with new technologies that are really going to get us there. I love that phrase, put your mouth where the money is. <laughs> Well, we'll certainly be using our mouths as the transition unfolds. Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, and I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks, everyone, for checking the show out. 